0: Hi, I'm Chris Wigley, CEO of Genomics England. I've spent my career at the intersection of technology, ethics, and human stories. Now, I lead the amazing team here at Genomics England. We're trying to bring the benefits of genomic medicine to everyone, and that involves accelerating genomic research and also working with the NHS to bring genomics into the heart of healthcare. Genomics is a word that can trigger really strong responses, hope, fear, anger, and there's a lot of information out there it's not all accessible to non-experts and there are some myths out there so we want to talk more about this word the g word genomics that's what this podcast is about welcome to the g word so hi thanks for tuning in to the g word Um, this is going to be our penultimate podcast of the year we're going to wrap up the year with a uh, selection of highlights from all of the conversations we've had this year about genomics and all the associated issues that it raises as, uh, as these technologies and uh, sort of scientific advances come into the mainstream. But before we get to our highlight session, it is my huge pleasure to welcome to the podcast our new chief scientist, Professor Matt Brown. Matt, welcome to the podcast. Um, welcome again to Genomics England. Remind us, how long have you been at Genomics England now?
1: So thanks very much for having me on, Chris. Uh, This is the end of my fourth week. Uh, So as I keep telling people, I've worked out uh, where the bathrooms are and what time to turn up tomorrow.
0: And Matt, before you were with us, um, you were at uh, King's University in London and um, at and St Thomas' Hospital. You've uh, run various things in Australia. You've been at Oxford. Just give us a sense of, I guess, how you got into the field initially and then maybe we can double-click on some of the wide range of things that you've done in
1: yeah, so I was at uh, King's College London and Guy's and St Thomas' NHS Foundation Trust as the director of the Biomedical Research Centre there for uh, two years before moving over to gel. But look, I, you know, I've been interested in uh, genomics going back to early childhood. So my dad was a paediatrician in Sydney and his main area of expertise and, and it was that he was the main cystic fibrosis uh, clinician for uh, pretty much Australia. And he therefore often involved us in events involving cystic fibrosis families. We're talking about late 60s, early 70s here. And at the time, you know, that was just a, a, a terrible disease. It's still not, a, not an easy disease to live with or to, for families to have to manage. Uh, but at the time, it was really terrible with uh, not great life expectancy and uh, not great quality of life for uh, uh, patients affected with the disease, and uh, so watching that happen, and um, then seeing the excitement in the mid nineteen eighties when the cystic fibrosis gene um, was actually finally mapped and identified, and seeing what a massive impact that had on the families—that that, uh, that uh, meant that they were they had an understanding about the pathogenesis of the disease. That they were able to introduce genetic screening. That actually had been already some biochemical screening introduced, which had been revolutionary for them, because then um, we could have carrier screening and things like that, and you could get diagnosis shortly after birth, which meant that we had early, you had early interventions, and that was uh, resulted in much better outcomes for people. And that really got me going on on genomics. So, you know, with the CFTR stuff, they uh, they were able to then look at the. Um, evolutionary history of the receptor itself and then look at human population evolutionary history and migration and things like that and I found that absolutely fascinating. So my dad had to do continuing education programs for the Royal Australian College of Physicians and at this point uh, I was uh, in my um, mid-high school years and he was a busy clinician and like many busy clinicians found that this was a bit of a chore. So there was one on, on genomics so it uh, basically uh, there was this long course that was run by uh, an expert called Ron Trent from uh, Sydney, and he he found that there was somebody who was quite clearly not an adult physician who was doing the course uh, and just put up with the fact that for six months, uh, he he had all of these uh, correspondence backwards and forwards with me pretending to be my dad uh, <laughs> during this course. And uh, so I really got into it through that um, then I uh, so, so, so
0: your your dad was effectively using you as child labour too, <laughs> <laughs> yeah,
1: <exactly. laughs> it. but it was it was completely fun and so uh, uh, you know no no hard uh, feelings there and and Ron Trent basically has been uh, a good support in years after that as well. Um, so he uh, after that I uh, I ended up uh, moving into I, I trained in medicine and um, ended up working in rheumatology, which is Um, a disease area which has got a lot of immune-mediated diseases as well as other different areas that they work on. And what was apparent to me was that uh, for most of the immune-mediated diseases we are managing, our treatments were barely effective, arguably effective at all, and uh, that I was going to retirement functions of rheumatologists who would largely spend the time opining about whether in the last 30 or 40 years of their career they actually made any difference to their patients. And I'm confident that they did, uh, not the least because actually just providing supporting care for patients in that circumstance is actually very valuable. Uh, But it actually pushed me towards uh, research a lot. And what was apparent was that a lot of these diseases were genetic, but we actually didn't have the tools for being able to um, identify the genes involved.
0: So a huge kind of area of unmet
1: need, I guess. Yeah, totally yeah mm. and uh so i went to um in 1994 to start a research degree where i intended to to go for two years to university of oxford to give myself a trial at research to see whether i really enjoyed it and and um so uh, two years became 12 years which answers the question about whether i enjoyed it uh, and i was working at welcome trust center for Human genetics and um in the first sort of six to eight years of that, it was, you'd say, fairly unproductive. Uh, We did a lot of really fascinating epidemiology studies about, for example, total heritability of the diseases and looking at modelling of the diseases to see whether or not they were uh, monogenic, which is what most people thought they were at the time. I'm talking here particularly the diseases rheumatoid arthritis and the main disease I've worked on, ankylosing spondylitis, which is an inflammatory disease of the spine particularly. And, and showing monogenic,
0: that, monogenic meaning there's just one out of the 22,000 genes in the whole human body that kind of drives that uh, disease or condition, right?
1: Yeah, well, of course, at that time, we didn't even know how many genes there were. So uh, at the, we were thinking there was eighty to 100,000 genes. Um, and uh, that, uh, anyway, our understanding was unbelievably simplistic. And yes, so we thought that they were due to single gene variants, one for rheumatoid arthritis in a gene called HLA-DRB1, and the other one in ankylosing spondylitis, a gene allele called HLA-B27. And whilst it's true that those are the biggest genes that are involved in those diseases, they represent only a minority of what explains the heritability of the diseases. And so I really felt that uh, mapping the remaining genes would give us you know a new microscope into understanding what the pathogenesis of those diseases were which at this time at that time we had absolutely no idea really so you would uh, i would go to these conferences where we'd have very bright determined immunologists largely talking about research in mouse models of those diseases which we now know actually barely have any relevance to the uh, actually what is going on in the human state. Although they taught us a lot about basic immunology, they really weren't very helpful for looking at humans, whereas humans were considered just too complex to work with, so nobody was working on them.
0: (laughs) And so a question, I guess from a human perspective, um, you just talked about a bunch of bright young immunologists, you you were a sort of uh, starry-eyed young researcher. Um, Six to eight years feels like a long time. Um, Did you just have a very kind of zen perspective on this is fundamental science and, you know, it's not something you do in a few weeks. um, These breakthroughs, I guess, always do come after lots and lots of hard yards. What kept you going through the hard yards?
1: Um, So, firstly, I think uh, you could say that I'm uh, a glass 90% full type bloke. That I'm perhaps a bit over optimistic about how things were going to go, and that I truly wanted to run the experiment out properly to see whether we could um, identify genes other than HLA B27 using the approaches that we were taking at the time, which was taking multi case families and doing what's called linkage mapping, looking at how genes were inherited across generations in the families relative to the disease to try and identify um, genes that were involved. And uh, so, I think basically sheer optimism, bloody mindedness, um, and having a few wins in between times at basically proving uh, aspects of theories about how uh, ankylosing spondylitis was caused was really exciting. Um, you know, for example, I spent a couple of months in West Africa doing a population survey of the prevalence of rheumatoid arthritis and ankylosing spondylitis and comparing it with uh, genotype. Uh, data that I got from um, heel prick samples from uh, people participating in the study. That was a really fascinating study, which showed that basically there's something environmental in uh, West Africa uh, that protects against both of those diseases. And we still don't know what it was, but it did kill a particular genetic theory at the time, that it was due to genetic variation in those countries, which uh, which protects against the disease. Um, wow. So. So that was, you know, sort of little wins as you went along the way, proving that ankylosing spondylitis was a risk of the disease in European populations is almost 100% inherited, uh, was, was a pretty big finding, which has driven a lot of the research program since that time. Um, but uh, you're quite right, I didn't succeed in actually identifying any genes. And this was robustly pointed out to me when I went to a, a senior research fellowship with, interview with uh, what's now called Versus Arthritis, then called the Arthritis Research Campaign in 2000. Right, yeah. This this was a notable day because uh, I'd spent um, the night before being with my wife as she delivered our first child, or was delivered of our son. Uh, who came wow. into the world around about three or 4 a.m and about 9 a.m <laughs> i was in london in front of my senior research fellowship interview
0: <laughs> and a slightly slightly blurry-eyed slightly emotional <laughs> <laughs> totally.
1: anyway they were very nice about it they shook my hand they said congratulations asked you know all about what had happened then said well look you know today's your lucky day because we don't know anything about genetics but we've decided that you're a promising young fellow and uh, we're going to give you the money but We advise you that over the next five years that you get out of uh, genetics and you go and work on something else, uh, because you haven't found anything. Some other approach
0: to trying to uh, answer the same question, or just get into a completely different field.
1: (laughs) Yes, go into a completely different field is what they felt. And anyway, so look, uh, I took some notice of them and started working more on single gene diseases, um, and. Um, So it had some success in mapping single gene diseases, which we can come back to later, but which has been particularly exciting and is part of my drive to continue in in translational research in genomics. Uh, But in particular, with a group of people led by particularly Peter Donnelly and Lon Cardin at University of Oxford, we got together the Wellcome Trust Case Control Consortium um, in 2002-03. And that was such an exciting period of time where, A lot of the things that I'd been dreaming about and wondering about, about pathogenesis of disease, suddenly fell open in front of us in a very rapid succession that uh, was just hugely exciting time. There are only a few times, I think, in most researchers' lives where, you know, you have a really spine-tingling moment where you make an absolutely fundamental discovery, which you know is going to completely change how diseases are looked at, and that was a process where that was happening across different diseases week by week. It was absolutely uh, enticing and fascinating stuff, which I think has really shaped um, probably the majority of uh, uh, disease-based research uh, that's gone on since that time.
0: And just to bring that to life for us a bit, sort of how were those discoveries made? So this is, you were saying the early noughties, right, 2002, 2003, the Human Genome Project just kind of... Um, you know, being finalised and then polished and, you know, the draft worked on, what kind of day-to-day, week-to-week, what was the actual work that the teams were doing to make those discoveries?
1: Yeah, look, so just to to pick up on the what the study was all about. So, uh, a, a lot of people have sort of said that uh, uh, genetics ignores diversity, but actually that's completely wrong and doesn't actually understand the history of genetics or how gene mapping actually works, where... Uh, In fact, the Wellcome Trust Case Control Consortium was designed to look at whether diversity in the UK was greater than the individual signals of uh, genetic association and whether that would prevent us being able to actually map genes. And so it was a study that initially decided to look at different geographic regions around the UK to see whether just differences between east and west UK, north and south UK actually were bigger than the differences between people with hypertension, diabetes, arthritis and people who didn't have those diseases. So, in fact, it was a diversity study at the very beginning and that is the birth of really modern genetics, I think. Right. Um, And so what we've then happened was that we had enough funding to do two chromosomes by the old technology when we were funded and roughly at the same time, both Affymetrix and Illumina came out with products that allowed us to do um, not cheap, but at least affordable SNP coverage across the whole genome, enabling us to move from family based studies to studies where we looked at unrelated cases and controls to look for ancestral regions of DNA that were shared between cases more than they were between controls. So, again, you know, diversity was underpinning the whole thing. The whole linkage disequilibrium mapping process is driven by an understanding that basically diversity drives differences in disease prevalences. And uh, so, in addition to showing that um, actually you can tell the difference between SX-Man, SX girl and uh, and people from the rest of the country, it did actually succeed hugely in mapping um, new genes for uh, different diseases. So I think in the main um, nature paper, there were 28 genes that basically identify that were robust genes, which uh, it had been thought that maybe as many as 12 across all human diseases had been mapped before then. Uh, and for ankylosing spondylitis, we had uh, one standout gene, which was a it was a standout straight away. And the second one, um, interleukin 23 receptor, was one that was I think 14th on the top list of loci. But I had to pick two loci to to replicate because that's all the money we had. And I picked it and the other gene and it came up big time. So and you got the golden ticket. <laughs> absolutely. Well, the people who really got the golden ticket were the patients because the interleukin-23R variant was the first evidence. So it was picked up in AS at the same time as it was in psoriasis and inflammatory bowel disease and gave us the first real clue as to what the main immunological system driving those diseases is. It had been looked at in... Uh, mouse models previously, but uh, bizarrely they were heading in the direction of multiple sclerosis and rheumatoid arthritis and Mm. driving clinical trials of drugs targeting those pathways in those diseases, where we know actually those pathways are not not significantly involved in those diseases and that targeting those pathways is not beneficial for those diseases. Uh, Whereas uh, what we did do was we went to Novartis Center Core and said, you've got to trial your drugs in ankylosing spondylitis and now it's a either first or second line treatment for that disease and sells over a billion US dollars a year of drugs. Uh, So heaps of patients have benefited from that. And if you actually just look at the sales of those drugs, it way exceeds the total investment in genomics, in common disease genomics that have been made since the Wellcome Trust case control, just on that one discovery. Wow. So So it was a huge hit.
0: Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Um, amazing. And can we can we come back momentarily to, let's say, Essex versus Somerset? Um, what what were the? Um, I've literally never heard about this before. and It's fascinating. So what what kind of differences could you see from people on the east side of the country and people on the west side of the country?
1: Well, there are a few really good stories. So the things that really stood out in terms of uh, determinants of uh, or things that varied between geographic region and therefore um, long term ancestry. Where your genes came from uh, were uh, genes related to uh, resistance to infection and uh, survival from nutritional deficiency. So uh, there uh, t- they, they were toll like receptor innate immune uh, genes that were presumably being driven by things like uh, tuberculosis, plague, leprosy, those sorts of things, particularly plague. Um, and uh, the other one, a really fascinating story, was around NICE and metabolizing genes where there was an east-west variation in niacin metabolising gene variants. And that, we think, relates to uh, the fact that niacin deficiency or pellagra was pretty common in East England because of a move towards a corn-based diet after corn came back from the New World with Columbus. And that basically people looking at eating degraded corn often ended up with niacin deficiency, which causes pellagra, which is the disease of D's, diarrhoea, Dermatitis, dementia, and death. And uh, it killed very large numbers of people in um, East England. And therefore, you see, well, we think this is probably what's driving the, the difference in uh, niacin metabolizing genes across the country. Wow. Yeah, fascinating, fascinating story. Mm.
0: Um, amazing. And sorry, so we're at this phase where suddenly you and your fellow researchers have the tools at your fingertips to actually do this kind of association research at a scale that had never been possible before. How did did that play out from research into the clinic into actual clinical treatment of of patients?
1: Yeah, so uh, that's a really good question. I'd also watched lots of researchers get to the end of their uh, research natural life and uh, not have achieved translation into clinical space and uh, definitely did not want to end up in that circumstance myself. So uh, alongside actually just trying to um, turn the crank on GWAS and seeing exactly how far we could get GWAS to actually uh, how many different diseases we'd be able to resolve and how far into the genetic architecture of the diseases we'd actually be able to reach, uh, I also uh, built a group, by this time I was back in Brisbane, Australia, that were really good on functional genomics. Functional genomics is uh, working out how the genetic variation you've uh, identified uh, operates to cause disease uh, through uh, its effects on protein cells and whole organisms, Um, and uh, working on drug development programs. We needed to work out what the genes were that were involved. I personally don't think that's as hard as people make out, that nearly always it's actually the one that's staring you in the face. Of course, there are exceptions to that, but it's not all actually usually, in my experience, it is pretty clear. And then working out how that gene actually operates to cause the disease and what you can potentially do about it therapeutically. And so we've got some really exciting things. I mean, the, obviously, the, the the great example is the uh, IL-23 pathway interleukin-17 inhibitors, which have become uh, standard uh, used medications in AS and psoriasis in particular, but even in other diseases. So we've got other targets in ankylosing spondylitis. In fact, in that disease, there are some exceptions, but most of the drug development programs around the world in that disease come out of our genetic discoveries for it. And also in some other diseases, uh, so in particular, some other immune-mediated diseases uh, where we've got some drugs which we're hoping to take into first human trials over the next few years in a condition, scleroderma, which I'll come back to, and on the same pathway, atopic dermatitis. So the scleroderma one's particularly sweet because my very first lecture as an undergraduate medical student was about scleroderma and was telling us about how it had no treatments and how terrible it could be as an example of how chronic diseases could be so bad. So getting a win and getting a therapy up for scleroderma would be outstanding. At the moment, we're at the point where we have a a medication that targets a a known gene for the disease, and we're in the most accepted mouse model for the disease, we've got you covered. Uh, We can cure the mice and prevent the disease in the mice. And uh, so we're really looking forward to taking that forward into that disease and potentially, potentially also into lupus and atopic dermatitis.
0: Fantastic. And it's, it's, I guess, seeing that whole life cycle from novel idea, potentially enabled by some novel technology or novel approaches, through to the hard yards of doing the experiments, um, you know, persisting through, but then actually getting to that translational point of understanding how the genotype is driving the phenotype, therefore what we can uh, do about it, and actually getting that treatment into patients and seeing those outcomes, Happen and those, you know, human stories uh, improve, must be incredibly satisfying for you, for your teams, and so on. As a as a researcher, give us a sense of how long that arc took in some of those cases, and and how long it takes these days if we accelerated, and what can we be doing to accelerate that that drive from fundamental idea to translation to you know, therapeutic development to actual clinical treatment.
1: Yeah, well, you could say that it's thirty years of research for me, but in fact, I'd say that the the kick off point was the Wellcome Trust case control being funded in two thousand and four. So then you're looking at, um, you know, for repositioning indications like the IL seventeen inhibitors, um, ten years. Uh, for de novo drug development, you're looking at fifteen to twenty years before you're first in human. Uh, now, I think that um, that could have been sped up a lot if uh, rheumatological diseases had been a higher priority for public funding and for uh, for commercial research. Um, but you know even with reasonable funding, it would have taken us a decade at least to have gotten that far. And with that in mind, it's amusing to note that at the very first press conference about releasing the information about Wellcome Trust Case Control Consortium, one of the criticisms came up was that, um, that they didn't think it was, uh, people asked about whether they thought this was likely to have clinical application and scepticism about that. Wow. uh Just it, it, science takes time, and uh, yeah. it'd be nice to short shorten it a lot. But I think uh, I think you know, real realistically, to get things out under a decade from basic science is very very quick.
0: Yeah, and with things like synthetic biology, you know, we we saw the power of some of these mRNA platforms in you know rapidly developing vaccines for the pandemic. Do you think that there are applications there which could be transformative in? the next kind of five, 10 years, could we we see a real acceleration of that? Or is that in specific niche areas?
1: Well, I think it gives us a completely new modality for treating diseases, potentially. I mean, they've obviously been looked at and used for um, as a form of gene therapy to enable or to prime the immune system for a particular target. But undoubtedly, there's a lot of people looking at those now as ways of um, delivering other types of therapy that have not been feasible before. Uh, and and targeting um, genetic diseases in a a way that hasn't been feasible before, not strictly gene therapy in the sense of correcting germline uh, variation, but um, at least being able to um, get the body to produce continuously uh, gene products that overcome genetic defects. I think that's really exciting. So I think, yes, it's got a lot of possibility there.
0: Very cool. And so if we step back a bit, I guess, you know, here we are towards the end of 2021 and we've got great advances in the tooling like short read genome sequencing, long read genome sequencing, methylation, transcriptomics, proteomics, this whole panoply of kind of tools. We have the big data and sort of storage and compute uh, tooling and and platforms available. We have lots of... um, New uh, tooling and uh, sort of interfaces at the top of the stack, so to speak, and sort of to en- enable some of those research workflows, those bioinformatics workflows, and um, the the clinical end of things. To some extent, having lived through the work in the sort of eighties and nineties of handcrafting this, it must feel like being a kid in the candy store. But like, how do we how do we marshal all of these amazing things to do the right work? You know, how do we make choices in, in, in this sort of, um, you know, amazingly rich environment that we now
1: live in? Yeah, Chris, it's amazing. Uh, clearly technology has uh, led to several of the major leaps forward in biological understanding. The last one that occurred in my career was the development of next generation sequencing and the ability that that gave us to move away from family studies to identify single gene diseases to being able to look at a few unrelated uh, People with the disease and compare those with uh, healthy genomes to identify um, disease-causing genes. And that led to uh, um, identification of the genetic variants that underpin most single-gene diseases in the space of a very short period of time. Again, another hugely exciting period of time for uh, researchers and as well, of course, for the people with those diseases because it enabled them to have understanding of the disease pathogenesis, pre-implantation diagnosis, and uh, development of therapies. So now of course we've got multiple new uh, technologies coming around of which you listed a whole bunch just then. Um, I don't think any of them are going to be quite as um, blockbusting as as next generation sequencing was um, or prior to that microarrays but each of them is going to have areas where they're going to completely enable resolution of Uh, key aspects of diseases and leads to the development of much better understanding of disease pathogenesis and ultimately to treatment of diseases. So just as an example there, in ankylosing spondylitis, the development of the ability to profile what T-cells are actually um, reacting in the condition means that we've now identified a small subset of T-cells that carry a particular T-cell receptor that's found in people who have bacterial-induced reactive arthritis and also in most most, or nearly all patients with ankylosing spondylitis, but virtually nobody who doesn't have the disease. And that gives us a real handle about what actually triggers the disease and therefore a chance that we can actually prevent the disease altogether. Uh, so that sort of horses for courses use of different omics to resolve specific diseases, I think we'll see an awful lot more of. Um, It's going to not be cheap, Um, it's going to require a lot of agility of researchers to come to get to grips with new technologies and learn what questions to point these particular microscopes to. But I think we're in for a very rich decade of uh, new biological understanding about diseases and from that a lot better ability to prevent and treat diseases.
0: Incredible times. In your role, you know, you're coming into Genomics England um, at this point. I guess maybe if I can combine two questions. What was it that excited you about the, the ability to have impact at Astronomics England? And just as you're getting your feet under the table, what's your initial read on you know, your, your priorities in the role?
1: Uh, Look, the Genomics England job is a dream-come-true job for me because I think uh, genomics has reached the point, it's matured enough uh, both in our capabilities and our understanding of disease that it's really at a position where it should be widely implemented in uh, clinical practice across rare diseases, across common heritable diseases and across cancers to better uh, patient diagnosis and patient management. That's ultimately been my major goal during my career. It's been about making a difference to patient experience um, particularly for people who had untreatable previously diseases or where our treatments were sub, were clearly inadequate, like they are still for most cancer types, unfortunately. So uh, Genomics England, I think, is amongst organisations worldwide, almost unique, if not unique, in, in being able to, um, to be able to carry that forward. It's got the right combination of the right environment within the healthcare system. Uh, the NHS gets a lot of criticism, but I can tell you that working in different healthcare systems around the world. From my perspective, I think it's a a really strong, if not uniquely capable uh, organisation to be able to do this sort of work. Uh, It's uh, got uh, high level political support and um, a joined up group of clinicians and scientists who are all heading in the same direction. So we're not seeing tribalism about it in nearly so much as I've experienced in working in other uh, countries so i think uh it is it, it's also going to have a massive impact worldwide clearly it did over the hundred thousand genomes project you know from australia we looked on in awe about what was being done and um it uh it hopefully is shaping what's going on for future developments of genetic medical services in australia which uh, but i'm sure it is in other countries as well so the ability to actually influence uh Genomic medicine services and, geno- and near patient genomics research globally is a very attractive thing about this particular role because I think it's going to make the biggest difference that I can make to um, pay- to human health.
0: It's hugely inspiring, and um, you've met a few times with some of our uh, participant representatives uh, in the, in, as you've uh, landed here. What are they What are they telling you about what they see as the priorities for, for you as you come in?
1: Yeah, look, the the patient participant panel is also one of GEL's strongest features. It's from day one, obviously had really good um, outreach and engagement with the people who we depend on to be able to do our work and who ultimately will benefit uh, the most from our research. So they've got those desires and anxieties, and anxieties about data security and future direction of Genomics England, which always happens when there's change. Um, and also desires to see more use of the data. Uh, sometimes to help individual, their individual cases, uh, sometimes to help particular communities of patients, um, but overall to benefit people with uh, rare diseases and cancers. So I think they want to see us making the most use of that data, and they'd be uh, they're they're uh, very anxious to ensure that data just doesn't sit in a in a data bank or get used inappropriately. But I think yeah. uh, we can be pretty confident that is going to occur, given what I know of the programmes going forward.
0: Well, some some good marching orders for us as we come back from the Christmas break and kick off uh, 2022. What's on the, What's on your to do list?
1: All right. So I think on newborns we've got a very exciting programme which is being led by Richard Scott, our chief chief medical officer, and I'm looking forward to working with him on developing research programmes around that. Um, And uh, in the other two major programs in cancer and in diversity, I'm going to be putting a lot of attention into those because I think those are areas where we really can make some um, major advances and where there's a substantial unmet need. Diversity we've already talked about a bit at the beginning of the program, but um, clearly there's a big need for us to um, stretch genomics out of working predominantly on white European descent. Um, people to work on basically the rest of the world and that people a lot of people will gain from that program and in cancer you know obviously a disease area where it's one of the major global causes of death something like half or two-thirds of uh, of adults ultimately will develop cancer Um, and I think there's just so much more we can do with the new technologies we've got available and in particular the um, new data analytic methods of looking at multi-modal uh, multi, uh, type uh, research data sets that will much better capture the complexity of the biology of cancer and lead to much better uh, treatment outcomes for patients.
0: Fantastic. Matt, that's a that's a very full slate of work. Um, it'll be exciting to see how that um, that picks up and, uh, and takes off. So, Again, as we look forward to 2022, um, we've had pretty much a conversation a week this year, I think maybe even slightly more frequently than that. We're going to be talking a lot more about genomics in the next year on the podcast. Um, What are some themes that you think we should pick up on or who are some interesting people we should get in? Uh,
1: Look, I'd be really excited to hear from people about um, novel data analytic approaches. I know that sounds fairly dry, uh, but I think uh, people's understanding about uh, new computational abilities is, in my experience, overall, fairly modest. I know that there's a lot of anxiety about um, machine learning approaches, and in particular about machine learning approaches being translated into to healthcare. So I'm really keen to hear from experts there, like people like Kim Branson from GSK and others in that world to hear about what's happening now and where they see the future in that for personalised medicine and for biomedical research. Really
0: exciting. Matt, thank you so much for making the time today, telling us a bit about where you've come from and uh, where you and Jell are going. Really, really appreciate it.
1: Thanks very much for having me on, Chris. And I think it's gonna be a really exciting adventure over the next few years together.
0: Well, that's all for this episode. Thanks for listening to this discussion about the G word and for joining us on this journey to highlight and debate the implications of genomics as it comes to the mainstream of healthcare and society. Remember to subscribe to The G Word on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen. If you have views on these topics, if you have a suggestion for someone we should interview, then do write to us at podcast at And do remember, if you've enjoyed listening, that giving us a five-star review really helps other people find out about the series. and appreciate it very much. See you on the next episode of The G Word.